Hello everyone, it's me, Andy. Before we begin, I just wanted to acknowledge two things that will occur with the show going forward. For starters, I'll return to publishing once every two weeks. Researching, writing, narrating, editing, and then promoting a podcast takes a ton of work, and the schedule of posting every week was honestly starting to wear me down. Additionally, I've noticed that the inclusion of music and sound effects has been a divisive issue among listeners of the show. Some people love them, some people hate them. So, I decided to poll my donors on Patreon, and they voted that I should continue to use them, but in a more limited fashion. So from now on, that's what I'll be doing. Sorry for the interruption, let's get back to the show. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, we witnessed the humble beginnings of the Aksumite Kingdom, and its ascent to become the uncontested ruler of the northern Ethiopian highlands. However, Aksum is nowhere near reaching its peak yet, and today we'll witness Aksum continue to climb to ever higher heights of power. Episode 15, The Aksumite Invasion of Arabia In the year 210 AD, southern Arabia was a land of blood and fire. Ever since the decline of the Sabaean kingdom more than 300 years ago, the region had descended into the rule of five petty kingdoms, the kingdoms of Nadron, Kataban, Hadramut, Himyar, and the last remains of Saba constantly bickered in the form of bloody conflicts. Whenever one kingdom was gaining an upper hand over the others, the other kingdoms would join together in a coalition alliance to cripple the strongest kingdom back to a status of equality with the others. To the outside world, Southern Arabia was an untouchable cesspit of perpetual violence. To even try and exert influence in this region was a fool's errand. Even the Romans, famous for their ability to conquer and pacify even the most chaotic of frontiers, were turned back in brutal fashion when they tried to invade southern Arabia in 25 BC. 235 years after the Romans' devastating defeat, however, a new ambitious conqueror set his eyes on the prize of controlling southern Arabia. This man was Godarot, king of the fledgling empire of Aksum. As we came to learn in our last episode, Aksum was the relative new kid on the block when it came to politics in the Red Sea. The city was at first just a small agrarian settlement on the fringes of the Ethiopian highlands, but through a combination of cunning leadership, advantageous geography, and luck, the city had ascended to the status of the hegemonic ruler of the highlands. The grand cities of the mountains, like Yeha, and the coastal metropolis of Kohaito and Adulis, once the far superiors of the little farming village of Aksum, were now its subjects. The conquest of the port city of Adulis proved especially game-changing for the Aksumite kings. While Aksum had previously trafficked in ivory and pepper, the acquisition of Adulis catapulted Aksum into an even more lucrative trade, the ever-valuable incenses of frankincense and myrrh. The kingdom was now the world's lead exporter of this incredibly precious commodity, and profited enormously. By becoming the dominant exporter of incenses, Aksum was now a truly global power. What do Rome, China, India, Persia, Indonesia, and Southeast Asia all have in common? They all buy their incenses from Aksum, enriching Aksumite merchants in the process. However, while Aksum's dominance of the incense trade was lucrative, it also came with a massive risk. Despite being in a state of permanent political chaos, the various kingdoms of southern Arabia were still fairly important competitors in the incense trade. These cities could, through over-exportation, inadvertently sink the price of incense globally at any moment. Additionally, their presence as an alternative source of incense gave the customers of Aksumite merchants a degree of leverage in negotiations. 
Like, hey there, Oxamite merchant, I love buying incense from you and all, but if you keep upping the prices on this stuff, I'm gonna have to start buying from that Himurite merchant instead. No, if Oxum was gonna continue its meteoric rise, the submission of southern Arabia to Ethiopian rule was a non-starter. Enter King Gadarat. Gadarat ascended to the throne of Aksum in 200 AD, and immediately made it clear that the expansion of Aksum through military conquest was his primary policy agenda. Almost immediately after ascending to the throne, Gadarat waged war against the few remaining northern highland cities that resisted Aksumite rule. Following his success in this early experiment with expansion, Gadarat immediately began the process of provoking a war against the peoples to his south. The first of these people was a Cushitic-speaking people known as the Athagaus, likely the ancestors of the modern Aga ethnic group. The Aksumite army won a quick victory, and the Athagaus people were integrated under Aksumite rule. After his conquest of the Athagaus, Gadarat turned his attention towards a new goal, advancing Aksumite control across the Blue Nile for the first time. This land was occupied by a motley mix of different peoples, with a majority speaking a variant of the Ethio-Semitic language, while small villages dotted throughout the land hosted a minority who spoke Cushitic languages. The Semitic-speaking people are called by historians the Proto-Amara people, the ancestors of modern Ethiopia's Amara ethnic group. Whenever the Proto-Amara people, who the Aksumites called the Anines, met Gadarat in battle, they were crushed. However, despite his endless military victories, Gadarat eventually met an impervious wall in the form of Ethiopia's Semian Mountains. The Semians are the highest mountain peaks of the Ethiopian highlands, a mountain range so tall that it's one of the few parts of Africa that regularly receives snow. This treacherous weather vastly slowed the advance of Gadarat's armies. His soldiers and their supply caravans struggled to pass through the stinging blizzards of the Simeon Mountains. Despite this slowing of pace, however, Gadarat's invasion carried on, with city after city falling under Aksum's sway. However, despite continuing his endless victories, cracks were beginning to form in Gadarat's campaign. Supplies were running low, and morale among his troops was depleting fast. Even worse, it seemed that with each city and town Gadarat conquered, the defenses got stronger. Word was spreading about his invasion, and with each town they conquered, it became clear that the locals had spent more time preparing defenses before they arrived. By the time Gadarat crossed the Blue Nile, his supplies were nearly entirely exhausted. Recognizing that he had reached the limits of his conquest, Gadarat negotiated peace with the remaining unconquered cities, declaring that they would remain independent but pay tribute to him and future Aksumite kings. After his long and successful campaigns against the Proto-Amara cities, Gadarat settled down and resumed his role as a civilian king. The largest civilian project of his reign was the construction of a massive system of roads, which connected the most economically important cities of Aksum to Roman Egypt. Remember, the Romans were, by far, Aksum's largest customer when it came to the purchase of all of its major exports. This series of roads ran across the coast, stretching from Adulis in Aksum to Berenice in Egypt. The main purpose of these roads was to cultivate an inland trade route between the Aksumite and Roman empires while bypassing the Nubian kingdom of Meroe, known for their notoriously stingy tariffs on foreign merchants. However, bypassing Meroe wasn't the only motivation for building a land route between Aksum and Egypt. Piracy is unfortunately to this day still associated with East Africa. Due to the high volume of commercial shipping that passes through the region, as well as poor economic prospects among the locals, the country of Somalia became a haven of piracy throughout the 90s and 2000s. 
In 210 AD, however, the pirates who swarmed the Red Sea were not Somalis or even East Africans at all. Rather, they came primarily from the southern Arabian kingdoms of Himyar and Hadramaut. These two kingdoms stretched along the coast of southern Arabia and were thus perfect havens for pirates-seeking port. These pirates harassed the Aksumite merchant ships that trafficked the precious incense and pepper shipments. To make matters worse, the governments of Himyar and Hadramaut tolerated and sometimes openly encouraged this activity. Piracy, after all, is a lucrative industry, and if you can find a way to tax its dividends, then they serve as a great source of revenue for your royal treasury. These blatant attacks on Aksumite vessels were intolerable, but Gadarat was powerless to stop them. Aksum was strong, but its armies simply didn't have the numbers to launch an amphibious invasion of Arabia, so instead he tried to encourage his merchants to use overland routes to Egypt. This sort of worked, but came with some severe limitations. Egypt, and the rest of the Roman world, was certainly a large portion of the Aksumites' customer base, but they weren't the totality. You can't build a road from Aksum to India, China, or Southeast Asia, so these pirates are completely walling you out of those markets. Additionally, carrying goods by land, while sometimes necessary, is generally less efficient and more expensive than traveling by boat. Plus, it's not like trading over land routes was necessarily safe either. The road to Egypt was often littered with bandits, who were just as eager to steal precious caravans of incense as the pirates were. Gadarat's ears were constantly filled with the lamentations of angry merchants. Come on, king, you've got to do something to help us out. So, do something Gadarat did, and he set to work playing politics. The biggest threat to Aksumite merchants was the kingdom of Himyar, just across the Red Sea from Aksum. At this time, the Himyarites were the rising power of southern Arabia, recently conquering the smaller kingdom of Nadron to their north. They had also forced Kataban and Saba to become their vassals. These moves dramatically upset the balance of power in southern Arabia, and made it very clear to the other southern Arabian kingdoms that, if they didn't do something about the rising Himyarites now, they would be vanquished in the future. Gadarat, exploiting this fear, sent messengers to the kingdoms of Kataban, Saba, and Hadramat, asking them to join him in a coalition against Himyar. Eager to weaken their rival with Aksumite support, each kingdom accepted. This alliance got off to a rough start, though. Himyarite spies had received word of the blossoming four-kingdom alliance, and so the Himyarite army made a preemptive attack against their vassal Kataban, scattering its armies and besieging its cities. Saba and Hadramut mobilized their armies and quickly mounted an invasion force to counter the Himyarite advance. While the Himyarite army was fighting the armies of Saba and Hadramut, a fleet of Aksumite ships docked at Zafar, the capital of Himyar. On board these ships were thousands of Aksumite soldiers, who rapidly disembarked and captured the Himyarite capital unopposed. With the capital under their control, this army then split in two, with one force heading north to Najran and another south to the port city of Aden. Najran, a region that the Himyarites had conquered only recently, welcomed the Aksumite soldiers, throwing the gates open to their city. As Gadarat received this positive news, victory must have seemed certain. Aden, however, proved to be a bigger challenge, with the city's small garrison putting up a fierce resistance to the Aksumite siege. To the east, the Sabaean and Hadrami armies had fought the Himyarite force to a bloody stalemate. To Gadarat, the news of this stalemate, along with the success of his forces in Nadron, seemed to be encouraging signs. Once Aden was captured, Gadarat could then send his forces to assist his Arabian allies, breaking the stalemate and winning the war against Himyar. 
but shortly after the battle between Saba and Himyar concluded, the king of Saba succumbed to wounds he received while leading his troops, and died. His son, Shair Altar, took his place on the throne, and he would prove to be trouble for Aksum. Altar maintained his alliance with the Aksumites, but was more skeptical of the utility of this alliance than his father was. Sure, Himyar was a threat, but what would happen when Himyar was defeated? Would Aksum just become a new tyranny to replace the Himyarites? If the alliance between Saba and Aksum was beginning to grow cold, the alliance with Hadramat had become an ice storm. Despite their alliance, Hadrami attacks on Aksumite merchant fleets had continued throughout the war. Gadarat was never under the impression that his alliance with Hadramat was meant to last, and his strategy in southern Arabia had always involved dealing with the Hadrami once they had won their war with Himyar. But the resumption of pirate raids hastened the collapse of this alliance that was always meant to be temporary. Assuming that victory against Himyar was just a matter of time, Godrop began planning an invasion of Hadramat with his Sabaean allies. Launching an unexpected attack, the Sabaean and Aksumite combined force quickly seized the Hadrami capital of Shabwa, and forced the king of Hadramat to sign a hasty peace agreement with Saba and Aksum. In this deal, Hadrami pirates would cease attacks on Aksumite ships, while Saba got nothing. King Awatar's involvement in the attack on Hadramat was already reluctant. The Hadrami had been close allies of the Sabaeans for generations, and Awatar was even married to a Hadrami princess. This attack had spoiled the relationship between these two kingdoms, and in return he got nothing? Additionally, Saba had always been under the impression that Aksum's presence in Himyar would be temporary, and that their army would go back home to Africa once the fighting was over. But while the Aksumite siege of Aden was ongoing, it seemed that Aksum's occupation of Zafar and Najran were becoming increasingly permanent. If Aksum occupied and annexed the territories of Himyar, Saba would almost certainly be next. In the year 225, Autar made his displeasure clear, sending a diplomatic mission to try and negotiate an Aksumite exit from Arabia. After all, they had achieved their goals. The pirate attacks from Hadramat had ceased, and Himyar had been weakened, Surely the Sabaeans could handle the rest of this war on their own. There was no way that Himyarite pirates would keep attacking Aksumite ships now that they had been put in their place. However, it appears that by this time, Godrat's intentions in southern Arabia had changed. Stopping piracy was no longer the mission, and it now seemed that Godrat saw this conflict as just another war of expansion. When the diplomatic mission returned with news of failure, Saba's alliance with Aksum was broken. Now openly hostile towards the Aksumites, the Sabaeans joined with the remaining Himyarites to fight a war against their common enemy. To Aksum, victory had once seemed inevitable in southern Arabia. But now, diplomatically isolated and still wrapped up in a seemingly unending quagmire of a siege in Aden, things weren't looking so good. With the Sabaeans no longer tying them down, the main Himyarite army returned to their home country, this time with Sabaean support. They broke the siege of Aden, forcing Aksumite troops back to Zafar. Aksum was now on the defensive. Then, to make matters worse, in 229 AD, Gadarat passed away. His successor, a man named Adheba, took the throne in his place. Almost immediately after his ascent to the throne, Adheba was met with bad news. Aksum's garrison, occupying the city of Zafar, had been overrun by the combined Himyarite and Sabaean armies. Recognizing his declining prospects in this war, Adheba signed a hasty peace with his southern Arabian enemies. After almost 19 long years of war, Aksum was finally at peace. 
they were allowed to keep the territory surrounding the occupied city of Najran, while Saba regained control of the city of Sana'a, and the rest of Himyar was handed back to its original king. So, what are we to make of the rule of Gadarat? On the one hand, he seems like one of the most successful rulers in Aksumite history. The first half of his rule, in which he campaigned against the Proto-Amaric and Cushitic peoples, is unquestionably successful. While he spent a great deal of resources expanding his kingdom southwards, the Lower Highlands would for the next few centuries be one of the most important territories of Aksum in the future. The Lower Highlands would become one of Aksum's most important territories over the next few centuries. While we could wax philosophically about the ethics of war and conquest and what actually makes a king good, I think it's undeniable that Gadarat was, at the very least, effective with what he sought out to do with these campaigns. His wars in Arabia, however, are a bit more difficult to discern in terms of their success. On the one hand, the nearly two-decade-long war had its fair share of failures. The collapse of the Aksumite alliances with Saba and Hadramut, for example, or the failure to capture the city of Aden, seemed to reflect very poorly on Gadarat's management of the conflict. Ultimately, Gadarat's desire to conquer all of Himyar had to be tempered, and his successor wisely chose to limit these ambitions to a more realistic conquest of the city of Nadran. However, I want to be charitable towards Gadarat for a moment. For starters, the initial goal of the conflict, to stop Arabian pirates from attacking Aksumite ships, proved to be entirely successful. Aksumite ships would generally be immune to harassment from Arabian pirates over the next 200 years. Additionally, the conflict did end up yielding Najran, which would prove to be a valuable Aksumite territory. Was it worth two decades of fighting, expending state resources, and lives? Hard to say. Examining the value of Gadarat's reign is even more complicated with the addition of hindsight. Sure, the land of Najran did prove valuable, but by taking land in Arabia, Gadarat had tied Aksum's interests into the chaotic quagmire of the southern Arabian politics. The politics of this region would come to define Aksum's foreign policy for the next century, with Aksum engaging in countless wars of dubious importance in the region. Regardless of whether the wars were worth it or not, this would prove not to be the last time that Aksum would become mired in Arabian conflicts. Join us next week as we see how King Areba tries to salvage the unenviable situation he inherited. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.